Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you'd open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that's where my Bible's opened up to. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to use this passage um, exclusively as we answer the first question of a couple of questions for Q&A night for the month of November. And yes, you heard me right, because this was intended to be last month's Q&A, but some other things came up and Q&A night got bumped for the month of November and I had some folks that actually complained about the fact that we didn't get a Q&A uh, session last month. And so I'm making that up tonight with the promise of a December Q&A here in uh, a couple of weeks. It's good to see everybody tonight. I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad to be here myself. And I appreciate the uh, the good wording of that fine prayer that our brother led us in. appreciate as well just the, the heartfelt way in which everyone engaged in the singing of those songs. There's just something about Sunday night, just the energy levels just a little bit higher. We've had plenty of time to, to wake up and maybe we got a nap and we've been well fed. And so the singing just always seems like it's just extra energetic on Sunday nights. And that's just a wonderful thing. There's just nothing else on earth, at least in my opinion, like being in the assemblies of God's people as we seek to worship Him in spirit and in truth. I do want to get a quick plug in. I told Cody he didn't need to make any announcements about it because I would do it tonight. I want to get a quick plug in for the auditorium Bible class that we will begin this coming Wednesday night. Most of you have already picked up a copy of this green thing here out in the foyer. There are still a few copies left. If you haven't got one and if we do end up running out, we can make more copies of that. But this is the material that we will use as we begin our study of the book of Colossians on Wednesday night. Before this Wednesday, as the teacher, I feel like I can maybe make some requests. And so before Wednesday night, I have just two requests if you're going to be up here and be in that class. Number one, first request, read the book of Colossians in its entirety. Somebody might think, whoa, that just seems like so much. No, it's not. It's four chapters. In my Bible, it's less than three pages. And I actually sat down and read it earlier this week, and it took me less than 15 minutes, okay? Not a big investment of time. Read the whole book in its entirety. Secondly, once you've read it, open up the material to lesson number one, and please just do those questions that are in there. There's seven questions. Again, not a huge investment of time and energy. Seven questions, and all the answers to those questions are just taken directly from the text. I believe if you'll commit to do those two things, we're talking about maybe... 30 minutes of time, 30 minutes of effort. If you'll do those two things before Wednesday night, we'll have a great class. That's my promise to you. That's Wednesday, though. How about we talk about tonight? Tonight is Q&A night. And in fact, Q&A night actually is going to intersect with our preaching theme for 2016 on parenting. Because tonight what I have is I have two questions from parents that have to do with their kids and knowing how to respond to some questions and concerns that their kids have. And while these questions did come from a couple of different sources, I believe that our examination of these questions and what the Bible says about these questions, it'll end up being beneficial for everybody. Not just the parents of those children, but the parents of, of, of every uh, child that we have here. It'll be beneficial for everybody, even if you don't have kids. These are things that need to be studied, need to be thought about. We need to know what the Bible says on these matters. In fact, let's just get right to this first question. The first question that I received was this, and that is, what do you say to a child who wants to take the Lord's Supper. Now, to help you appreciate the the seriousness of this question, I want you to think about this for a moment. We encourage our kids to participate in worship, don't we? 
We encourage our kids to join in the singing as everybody else is singing. We encourage our kids to bow their heads and pray along with the brother who leads us in our prayer. We encourage our kids during the preaching to get their Bibles out, to try to follow along, listen carefully, take notes, do all those sorts of things. Why, even on Sunday mornings, whenever those collection plates are being passed, we encourage our kids, maybe even give them a dollar or give them a quarter, to put money into the basket to give. We want our kids to participate in worship. That is until... Until it's time for the Lord's Supper. And then what do we say? We say, whoa, hold on there. Can't do that. And in the mind of a child, that can be really confusing. You know, hey, mom, dad, you want me to do this and this and this and this, but then when it comes to this, whoa, 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 you're saying I can't do that. Well, what gives there? Why can't I do that part of the worship? What's that all about? Well, I believe the best way to address and answer that question is let's just look at the text of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I do really like and I appreciate this question because it's going to give all of us an opportunity right now to think about the Lord's Supper, kids and adults. And so let's begin that reading. In 1 Corinthians 11, it's a well-known passage. Read with me beginning in verse 23. 1 Corinthians 11, 23, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it, and He said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way also, He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes." Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you, the Corinthians, are weak and ill, and some have died. Now, that is a passage that gets read from time to time at the table. But oftentimes, we don't get to really kind of take the time to explore and unpack all that's going on in that passage. Just take a look at what Paul is saying in this passage. First and foremost, Paul says that the supper is a remembrance and a commemoration of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It is something that is commanded by the Lord, verses 23, 24, and 25. Furthermore, it is a proclamation. It is a proclamation of our faith in Jesus Christ as God's Son and as our risen Lord and King. Verse 26. Furthermore, Paul says that it has to be done right. Verse 27. And part of doing it right means that we do some self-examination. Verse 28. Paul goes on to say that if you don't do it right, that you're actually subject to the judgment of the Lord. Verses 29. And third, and what all of that is to say is that the partaking of the Lord's Supper is very serious business. And from that reading, it is clear that the Lord's Supper is for Christians. And I would even dare say that it is for Christians only. What we just read in this text, 
makes plain that the supper is where the Christian celebrates what Christ did for him or her at Calvary. It is in a very real way. It is a communion with Christ. We often use that kind of almost as a synonym for the supper, that we're having communion, and that is certainly true. In fact, in chapter 10 and verse 16 of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about that, uses that word communion or participating, joint participation, sharing together in communion with the body and blood of Christ. And as a result of that idea of communion and fellowship, A non-Christian cannot commune with Christ because a non-Christian is not in fellowship with Christ. Furthermore, I want you to think about that proclamation that Paul says that we are doing in verse 26. I would ask the question, how can someone who is not a Christian proclaim their belief in the Lord Jesus Christ if they do not have that belief? And I know what somebody would be quick to say is they kind of maybe would try to come to the defense of a child. They maybe would say, well, kids kids do have some faith. And I understand that. Kids do have some measure of faith. But what we're talking about here, the idea that Paul's getting at here, is a fully formed biblical definition of faith. And what is the biblical definition of faith? It's not just knowing some facts and believing the facts. It includes acting upon what we have come to believe. Acting in obedience. And what all of that is to say is that the supper celebrates the redemptive work of Jesus and who we are in Christ Jesus. And so if you are not in Christ Jesus, then what exactly are you commemorating and celebrating? In fact, if a non-Christian were to take the supper, and if they were to do some of that really honest self-examination that verse 28 calls for, then I believe that he or she he or she would realize that they actually do not have biblical faith. They would realize that they are not in fellowship with Jesus Christ, which means that they would realize that the supper the supper is not for them. The supper is for sinners who have been redeemed by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. In fact, if a non-Christian really, really did that self-examination stuff, And if they really, really did understand what was going on there, they would just stop everything that they were doing. They'd stop everything. They'd say, whoa, I'm not right with God. I need to become a Christian. Stop the presses. I want to be baptized. I need to obey the gospel right now so that I can be forgiven of my sins. That would be the necessary result of truly grasping the implications of the supper. And so this really is an act of worship for Christians. Secondly, I would say, and what as parents we want to say to our kids, is that the Lord's Supper is something that must be done correctly. And in order for it to be done correctly, 1 Corinthians 11 teaches that we have to engage our minds. You know, of course, children, they look at the Lord's Supper, and what they see is, well, it's kind of an interesting looking cracker flying by. And there's this tray with all these little cups with crimson colored liquid in it. And especially little kids, they like juice. They know about juice. I can drink juice. And that's what they're thinking. They're saying, they see mom and dad, they take a bite of that cracker and they put that in their mouth. And they take that cup and they drink that juice. And they're thinking to themselves, I can do that. What's the big deal? That doesn't look so hard. Come on, let me in. Let me do that. But the Lord's Supper 
The Lord's Supper isn't really about eating and drinking. Yes, we are eating and we are drinking. That is part of it. But it is what we are doing with our heart, with our minds. That is what makes what we do with our mouths actually matter. And that's why Paul gives that very sober warning in verse 27. Paul points out there that if your heart and if your mind, if it's not in the right place then not only does that foul up the whole purpose of the supper, what it does is it brings condemnation on you. So as I'm taking the supper, and I'm supposed to be thinking about Jesus, I need to be thinking about His suffering, I need to be thinking about what God gave up and the lengths that God went to, I need to be thinking as well about that proclamation that I'm proclaiming His death in anticipation of His return someday. And as I'm examining myself, I'm thinking deeply about my walk daily with the Lord. All of that, that is the essence of the Lord's Supper. And that means then that the Lord's Supper, for the most part, it is a mental exercise. I'll reiterate, yes, there is a moment where we break off the cracker and put it in our mouths and we chew it and we swallow it and we do the same thing with the, with the cup. That is part of it. But on the whole, the majority of what we're doing is mental in nature. It is a cerebral kind of thing. And it is the kind of thing that calls for self-discipline and for careful thought. And for anyone then to go through the physical part of the supper, but to do that in a thoughtless or flippant or frivolous way, Paul says that is bringing judgment upon themselves. Verse 29. We don't treat the supper with the gravity and with the seriousness that it calls for, where we are actually engaging the mind, engaging our hearts, then that is what constitutes an unworthy observance of the supper. Sometimes folks, they read this passage and they see that stuff there about unworthy and they think, well, well, I'm not worthy of the supper. Of course, none of us are worthy of Christ's sacrifice. But that's not what the word unworthy there is talking about. It's talking about taking the supper in a flippant and careless and thoughtless sort of way. And the bottom line here, as we think about children, is that a small child is not able to treat the supper with the gravity and the seriousness that it deserves. Little kids are not able to think those long thoughts about Jesus and Calvary. Little kids are not able to fully understand beyond just the facts of the gospel. And I think you could teach a, you could teach a three-year-old the basic facts of the gospel. But the implication of those facts, what those facts mean for me as a sinner, that's what the Lord's Supper is calling for. And a child, child really isn't ready to engage in those kinds of thoughts. Perhaps in some ways, as I thought about this question and as I explored it, it came and kind of dawned on me that that age-old question that we often ask about how old does a child have to be before they can be baptized... I think in some ways it's answered right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You have to be old enough to take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. You need to be old enough to sit still long enough to think deep thoughts about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You need to be able to examine yourself, to think about your walk with God, to give careful thought to the significance of Christ's sacrifice. And if you don't understand that, if you don't yet have the maturity to worship in that way, then you're not ready to obey the gospel, 
Which means as well, you're not ready to partake of the Lord's Supper because that's one of the things that Christians are called to do. And so a small child is really just, really just too immature to understand the significance of what is going on in the supper. And so moms and dads, whenever we talk about that with our kids, what we want to emphasize to them is that this, this is very, very important. That is an important part of our worship and it is so rich with meaning. And we want to tell our kids that one day, a day will come when you will understand. And you will then want to be a part of that and you'll want to be a Christian. But it is special. And it is something that is reserved for Christians. Now hear me well as I say that and I've got that on the screen that the Lord's Supper is for Christians. That does not mean that if we have a visitor in our assemblies and that visitor is not a Christian, that we're going to run over there and we're going to slap their hands if they happen to break off a piece of cracker, if they lift a cup out of the fruit of the vine tray and say, hey, you can't take that. You're not a Christian yet. You're not supposed to take the Lord's Supper. We're not doing that. Don't anybody get any ideas about doing any of that. But if I'm asked, and I was, should children take the Lord's Supper? The answer from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I believe, is very, very clear. And that is that the supper is a significant act of worship that is dependent upon our understanding of what it means. And so that then sets the stage for us to help children so that when they do reach that age of maturity and they do become Christians, they'll then be able to take it seriously and to understand what Jesus did for them and they're able to commemorate Christ's death, burial, and resurrection in the Lord's Supper. I hope those will give you some ideas, some food for thought. Parents, you'll want to think about how you'll want to say those kinds of things to your kids. If you've got other talking points that maybe have been helpful for you, I'd welcome those. I'd love to hear those because I know a day is coming. In fact, I watch Hattie just about every Sunday when those trays are passed. She is getting so close to reaching up there and grabbing in there and doing something. So I've always kind of got one eye on her while I'm taking the supper. Day's going to come when I'm going to need to be able to explain that to my child. That's an important question. Now let me tackle this second question. I don't think this second question will take nearly as long because I actually addressed a a variation of this question back about a year and a half ago, back in February of 2015. But this question has come back around again, albeit in different form, and this just seemed like a good place to insert it in this uh, parenting study this year. The question is this, and that is, what do you say to a child who has fears about being possessed by a demon. And I think this question comes from a very honest place. I think this question comes for a couple of different reasons that I can think of and that I've been told and know of. First of all, I think that our kids take very seriously, as we all should, those stories in the Bible that talk about demon possession. We do have stories about that. Sometimes in our Bible classes, we'll study those things about people who were possessed by demons and what Jesus did to help them. And sometimes our kids, they read those stories or we're teaching those stories to them and they're wondering, they're thinking, could that happen to me? Could that happen? I don't want to be possessed by a demon like that man was or that woman was. If you couple that idea secondly with all of the movies 
and the television shows that Hollywood cranks out on a just a seemingly endless basis, especially those movies and shows that come around during Halloween time about demon possession. And how are those things presented? They're presented as horror movies and they're so scary and they're frightening and ghostly. and That's the way that they show the demons to look. It's no wonder that our kids do oftentimes get wound up about the fear of demon possession. Well, let's just look in the Bible. Look with me in Mark chapter 1. In Mark chapter 1, here is a good illustration of demon possession in the time of Jesus. And let's see how that worked and let's see what Jesus did about that. In Mark chapter 1, look with me in verse 23. In Mark 1 verse 23, the Bible says that immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. It's a guy possessed by a demon. And so he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Verse 25 now. But Jesus rebuked him saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Now, that's a... That's a pretty standard account, if, if there is such a thing as a standard account of a demon possession in New Testament times. Jesus encounters demons, and every time it pretty much goes just like this story did in Mark the first chapter. And from that, I believe there's a couple of things that we want to help our kids to understand. First and foremost, we want to explain to our kids that what the Bible teaches about demon possession is very, very different from what Hollywood depicts about demons and demon possession. We need to help our kids to be able to differentiate between the make-believe of the movies and the reality of what took place in the Bible. And so, for example, in the Bible, there is no discussion, none, about what a demon looks like. There's none of that. Tell me what a demon looks like. Anybody? Anybody know of any Bible verses that explains what demons look like? That's what I thought. There aren't any. There's none of that. There's no descriptions. There's no vivid details. There's no materialization there. There's no details about demons, how they have horns, and they have sharp teeth, and they have these scary, creepy-looking eyes, and they have these long, really weird fingernails. There's none of that in the Bible. Furthermore, there is no record in the Bible of magic or magic devices being utilized to combat demons. There's nothing about that. There's nothing about using a magical charm to try and ward off a demon or an evil spirit. Nothing in the Bible about encanting magical spells and able to, being able to deal with a demon. There's, there's none of that going on in the Bible. Additionally, the Bible provides no concrete information about the origins of demons. None. That's something that we could speculate about all night long. And we ain't doing that tonight. The Bible gives no definitive answers as to where demons come from, how they got here on planet Earth, none of that kind of stuff. What the Bible tells us about demons is limited to accounts like these here in Mark, the first chapter. Jesus looks at a demon who is possessing someone and He says, You, out. And he's gone. And that's pretty much it. That demon has to utterly obey the commands and the words of Jesus. 
There's no Jesus getting in there and having a big struggle and a fight and wrestling with a demon. You see movies like The Exorcist and the priest goes behind closed doors and boy, he comes out of there and he's just a mess because he's been at war with the demons. There's none of that with Jesus. There's none of the blood and the gore and the special effects going on. None of that. It's Jesus simply demonstrating absolute power over demons every single time. And so I say all of that to just emphasize that there is a huge difference between what the movies show and what the Bible teaches. Secondly, we want to make sure that our kids do not get overly fascinated with demons. What we want to help our kids to see is that in the Bible... The focus is not on the demons or the devil. In the Bible, the focus is on Jesus. You read that story in Mark chapter 1, and I come away, I don't care about those demons. I come away from Mark 1, and I am impressed with Jesus. And that's what the Lord wants us to see. You want to be fascinated with something? You be fascinated with Jesus. He kicked demons around regularly. Pay attention to Jesus. He's the one with the authority and the power. Which then leads to this final observation. And that is, we want to assure our kids that the Bible teaches, without a shadow of a doubt, that involuntary demon possession, that that has ended. That that does not occur today. By involuntary, I mean a demon entering into a person without that person's consent. And that certainly seems to be what happened so often in the time of the New Testament. There were people regularly, you read in the Gospels and even there in the beginning part of the book of Acts, where people were just attacked. They were victimized by demonic and evil spirits and they suffered greatly. But there's no indication in the New Testament that those people were possessed by demons because because it was their own fault. They're to blame for that. That was somehow the punishment for sins that they had committed. No. In the New Testament, people were possessed by demons against their will and made them to do things that they would never do otherwise. And I want to say again, that kind of thing is over. That does not happen anymore. Somebody maybe would ask, well, Josh, how do you know that? How can you be so sure of that? Well, look with me in Luke chapter 11. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus gives us a clue whenever He talks here in Luke 11 about the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God all about? In Luke chapter 11, read with me beginning in verse 14. Here's a case. Jesus is dealing with demons. Now He was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test Him, kept seeking from Him a sign from heaven. But He, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household will fall. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Notice verse 20 now. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That casting out of demons and even the demon possession during New Testament times, that was allowed by God as a clear sign of the power and the authority of the Messiah 
to say to people that when the Messiah is casting demons out, it would say to people, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. Look at what the Messiah can do. He has power even over the demons and the evil spirits. Verse 21 now. Verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus says, I am stronger. I'm stronger than the devil. I have come here, and I have dominion even over the demons. So this was associated with something something that was associated with the time while Jesus was here upon this earth, when the kingdom of God was in its infancy, in the beginning stages, throughout the Gospels, and then even in the early part of the book of Acts. In fact, in Mark the 16th chapter, we probably need to plug this in here. In Mark 16, Jesus says that signs and wonders, signs and wonders were going to be performed by the apostles in order to confirm the message that they had been given by the Lord. And one of the signs that they would be given is talked about in Mark 16. Look in verse 17. Mark 16, verse 17. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, these apostles, they will cast out demons. Drop down to verse 20. And they went out and they preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Now... This is not a lesson on the cessation of spiritual gifts, but suffice it to say, these gifts that Mark 16 discusses, they ceased when the Word of God was completed. You can read 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8, 9, and 10. It talks about that. Now, now what do we have to confirm the message? What do we have to confirm the message of the Lord? What we have now is we have this. We have something they did not have in its completion in the time of the New Testament. We have the entire revealed Word of God. We have the Bible, the written Word of God. That's what confirms God's message, which means we don't even need those miraculous signs anymore. And so whenever that power to perform and cast out demonic spirits, when that time ceased, so too did the involuntary possession by demons in the lives of human beings. That time has passed. When those spiritual gifts, when they went away, so too did demonic possession of this sort. And I think that's reassuring. And I hope that we'll be able to in some way explain that to our kids. Just pound away. The Bible lets us know that doesn't happen anymore. In fact, maybe the best verse to really calm our children's hearts is a verse that we know really, really well, but maybe we don't think of in this connection. In 1 Corinthians 10, would you look at 1 Corinthians 10, look at verse 13. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, I take great comfort in the promise of this passage. In 1 Corinthians 10 and in verse 13, Paul says there, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. From that passage, I simply want to say that the devil or any of the devil's army, the devil cannot overtake you. God won't allow it, the Bible says. 
You will not be overtaken against your will by a demonic spirit. That is God's promise to you, and that is God's promise to me. Now, having said that, this is a perfect place for me to make a nice segue to the invitation. Having said that the fact that God will not allow the devil or a demonic spirit to overtake you against your will, you need to understand. Young people, I want you to understand. You can allow the devil to overtake you. You understand that? You can let him into your life. You can let sinful and wicked things that the devil is all about, you can allow him to control your life, to take the reins of your life and just make a complete utter mess of it. You can allow Him to do that. You can. But by that very same token, you can also allow Jesus the Christ to take over your life. You can allow the Lord to be in command of your will. You can submit to Him voluntarily. Submit to Him. Surrender to Him. We sing songs about that all the time. I surrender all. You can do that. You can surrender to the Lord. and You can know the blessings and you can know the joys of serving Him and being one of God's children. We extend the invitation of Jesus Christ with those very thoughts in mind, that if there's any here this evening who needs to surrender their will to the will of King Jesus, then the opportunity is yours right now. If you'll confess your faith in Jesus as Lord, if you'll repent and turn from sin, you can be baptized tonight, to have all your sins washed away, you can be a Christian and you can leave here, go on your way rejoicing knowing that you have the hope of heaven now. If you are a child of God, but you've not been living right, then, brother or sister, you need to fix that. You need to come back to the Lord. You need to repent. You need to seek Him in prayer for His forgiveness. And if we can pray with you and encourage you in some way, then we would welcome that opportunity as well. We're going to sing this song, I am coming, Lord. Won't you make those words your very own? Come to the Lord. Do that right now. Do it while we stand and while we sing.